Welcome to the seventh episode of the Dumberton Oaks Byzantine podcast series. I am Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Program Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumberton Oaks, and we are joined today by Thomas Aronson. Hi, I'm Thomas Aronson. And Alexander Lingas. Hello, I'm Alexander Lingas. Thomas Aronson is reader in church history and works as researcher in Greek philology at Uppsala University, where he conducts the research project Beyond the Garden, an eco-critical approach to early Byzantine Christianity. He is the author of the monograph, The Virgin in Song, Mary and the Poetry of Romanos the Melodist, plus more than 20 articles and essays on Christian hymnography. He has edited several scholarly volumes and is article editor of Patristica Nordica Annuaria. And Alexander Lingas is a professor of music at City University of London, founder and musical director of the vocal ensemble Capella Romana, and a fellow of the University of Oxford's European Humanities Research Center. His present work embraces historical study, ethnography, and performance. In 2018, His All Holiness, Bartholomew I, Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome, an ecumenical patriarch, bestowed on him the title of Archon Musicodidaskalos. Today, they will be discussing the work of Cassiani, a 9th century Byzantine poet whose hymns feature in a recent recording by Capella Romana. Cassiani or Cassia, who lived from 810 to 865 AD, was a Byzantine abbess, poet, composer, and hymnographer. She is one of the earliest medieval creators whose compositions are both extant and able to be interpreted by modern scholars and musicians. As we listen to three hymns from the new recording, Hymns of Cassiani by Capella Romana, they'll answer questions like, who was Cassia and how did she lead her life? How common were female hymnographers in Byzantium? And how has Capella Romana reconstructed some rarely sung hymns of Cassia? So we are delighted to have uh, with us today two scholars who work on hymns to discuss a, a newly released CD with uh, hymns by Cassiani. I will start with uh, Thomas Aronson. So let's start with a basic question, Thomas. Cassia or Cassiani? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you, uh, Anna, for organizing this and for inviting us to do this this podcast episode is very interesting and, and uh, fascinating that you're doing this. And I'm also very grateful to Alexander for actually making this recording, which will, I think, surely make Cassia into someone much more known, both in the scholarly world and in the more sort of general realm. It, it's a great recording. It has some of the texts by Cassia, both in English and in Greek. It has a very fine introduction about the life and, and works of Cassia. So it's it's going to make her much more uh, out there and that I'm very thankful for. When it comes to the to the name of Cassia or Cassiani, these days one very often hears version Cassiani, which is the modern Greek 
version. But in the hymns themselves, Cassia has in the acrostics where you write down in the stanzas your name often. Byzantine poets did this. She assigns with Cassia. So it's clearly that Cassia was the version she used. And the, the early manuscripts all have Cassia or Icassia, where you, there was probably some confusion with the uh, the Greek article, so if it's e Cassia or Cassia. So in the 14th century is the first time that we see the form Cassiani. So I think it's probably a, a modern Greek version of the name. But of course, it's with, you know, with names. It could be Tom or you could be Thomas or Alex or Alexander. Maybe she was Cassiani among her uh, closest friends. I don't know. Okay, thank you very much. What do we know about Cassia's life? We know quite a bit. I mean, for being a woman hymnographer, we know quite quite a bit. She was born in the early in the uh, in the ninth century, so around eight hundred and ten in Constantinople, probably to a noble family. And one of the most important sources for Cassia's life is a uh, letter correspondence between her and the famous monastic writer, St. Theodore the Studite. And so we don't have her letters, but we have three of his letters that are addressed to her. And those letters suggest that she must have been a teen then because it was early, early in her life. But they suggest that she was someone who was taking active part in the sort of resistance to the iconoclasm, the, the policy of getting rid of the holy images. So she was even helping out and those who were persecuted because they were iconophiles, she helped them. And, and it, it's also suggested in one of the letters that she was actually also punished somehow or beaten for this. So she seemed to be very early age, active with strong principles she must have had a, a sort of an education in uh, more privately, but she must have had education, as we could tell from her, her writing. And then in the letters from St. Theodore, it seems that she wants to become a monastic. I mean, he is insinuating that. And then later in life, she actually becomes a, a nun and a, an abbess in a... Um, monastery, which is newly established monastery, close to the Studios Monastery, which is where Theodore was situated. And the Studite or the Studios Monastery was a very important center for hymnography and also for organizing hymns and for distributing hymns or creating a, a richer hymnographic corpus. So being aligned with Theodore and eventually other monks on in the Studios Monastery was surely an important part of her development when she eventually became a, a poet and a hymnographer. And we know that she wrote both hymns that are still in use in the Byzantine Rite, both by the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, those that use the Byzantine Rite in the Catholic Church. And she also wrote what one might call more secular poetry. Maybe we could come back to her work later, but that's, I think, the basics. 
Yes, we will come back to her work for sure. But now I am curious, since our podcast has at its core the new CD, I would like to ask Alexander, what is Capella Romana and how did it become involved with the hymns of Cassiani or Cassia? <laughs> well, uh, to echo what Thomas said, it's it's really fantastic to be here with you and to be able to share back some of the work on Cassia and Byzantine hymnography, that things that I've been looked up in the past in Dumbarton Oaks' wonderful library. So Capella Romana is a vocal ensemble that was founded in 1991, originally started off as a group of friends who wanted to do a benefit concert, and it went well, and we decided to keep going. And one of the things that we specialize in is working on the traditions of Eastern Christianity, and especially repertoire that is somehow related to my research as uh, a Byzantinist. And so one of the things that we've been called to look upon at various times, in addition to things like the the tradition of Hagia Sophia, where we had our, our recent Lost Voices uh, release, but also as the music of Cassia. We've been doing some of her music in various forms, either in settings by modern composers. So there are modern composers who have set her hymns, uh, and we've done those from very early on in our existence. But also the chant of hers as it exists, the melodies in medieval manuscripts. And so in 2004, we were invited to give a couple of concerts at a festival in London, the Byzantine festival that was dedicated to women in Byzantium that year. And we had the premiere of a new setting of a hymn by Cassiani by the composer Chrysos Hadzis of, of Toronto with Patricia Rosario as the soprano soloist, but also, uh, and that was with the English Chamber Choir, but also we were there to give the sort of original version. So we performed some medieval versions of Cassia's hymns as they exist in manuscripts transcribed by our own team, uh, researchers, especially uh, Dr. Yanni Sarvanidis of Athens, and performed it in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So, uh, And we've been chipping away at her work ever since, and we decided recently that she really, really deserves to be better known. She has a corpus of around, depending how you count them, around 60 hymns or so. And so it's a real substantial body of work, and only about half of them came into the modern service books. So it really is work that should be better known, especially given how well, say, Hildegard of Bingen is, is known now and who herself, her music was only revived a couple of decades ago. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think you touched upon a little bit on my question. So the question is how well known Cassia is in the Orthodox Church and in modern Greek culture as well. How well known is she? Well, she's very well known in, in modern Greek culture for two reasons. One, her legend the, of her life, slightly fantastic versions of her life story as it's been transmitted to us from Byzantine times. So it then has become almost a bit of a folk tale as it has been spun out. Even modern novels have been written her as a, as a protagonist. So there's that. And the other thing is there is a hymn that she wrote that got into the modern service books for Holy Wednesday, which is about the sinful woman mentioned uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And it is in the received tradition of Byzantine chanting, that is the, the type of, of chanting that's more or less the same melodies that are practiced all the way from Moldavia down to the Middle East, the kind of major centers of Constantinople, modern Istanbul, and Mount Athos. That setting of that Holy Wednesday hymn is 
one of the big vocal showpieces of, of Holy Week. So people will go in Greece and, you know, the people might not even go to church much. And they would say they will go on Tuesday evening to hear this service and, and say, you know, how was the Cassiani? Or even if they're really in the know, the who's Cassiani? Because there are multiple settings by different chant composers that it's, has been reset in the centuries. So that's kind of how she's known more broadly in the wider Orthodox Church. She is known among those people who bother to know such things as the writer of, of hymns, a number of hymns that are scattered throughout the service books, especially one for Christmas when Augustus reigned, which happens at a very sort of climactic point on Christmas Eve. And that one is well known, but actually her other ones, even the ones that made it into the modern service books, many of them are there anonymously, depending on the edition. So she's a kind of either a one hit wonder or at best, if you include When Augustus Reigned, a two hit wonder. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I was wondering about your take, Thomas, on her poetry. What would you say about her poetry from your perspective as a, a scholar of hymns? Well, I think the, the first thing one can say is that in addition to her hymns, she also wrote secular poetry that I mentioned before, which makes her a complex writer. I mean, she, she, she writes perhaps for different audiences, for different contexts. And this more secular poetry, if you will, is, in, is often called gnomic verses. And there are 261 verses that we have still today that are in the edition is said to be by Cassia. And they are in a, in a style that is very direct and kind of thing that you would sort of have on your wall, maybe. It's like, it's better to, to have good friends than to have, uh, you know, enemies or, you know, the, the kind of wisdom of everyday life in a way. And she's in a in a long tradition here, it's Menander has this kind of poetry, epigrams, the the Greek anthology. It's you can you can hear echoes of these things in her poems. Thank you, Thomas. Can I ask you? Could you give us an example of of some of her nomic poetry? Yeah, she has one on being a man and being a woman. I mean, there's two different ones, but I, I really like these ones. I'll start with the one on, on man. So it's like things to say about being a male, I guess. She says, a man bald, dumb, and with only one hand, short, swarthy, and with a speech impediment, bowed legs and with crossed eyes. When this man was insulted by a certain adulterer, an fornicator, drunk, thief, liar, and a murderer, because of his infirmities, he said, I am not the cause of my misfortunes, for in no way did I want to be like this, but you are in part the cause of your faults, as you did not receive from the creator these things that you do and endure and dignify. She's very concerned about, about being straightforward, honest, not trying to bribe people. There's a lot of this, just be straightforward. And also beauty uh, is something she's thinking about a lot. And in the one on woman, she says, and this is it's just an excerpt, but she says, it is moderately bad for a woman 
to have a radiant countenance. Yet beauty has its consolation. But if a woman is ugly, what misfortune, what bad luck. So um, <laughs> she, she's kind of harsh. But that's her, uh, you know, secular if we, or, or non-liturgical poetry. That's harsh. You should try the poem on stupidity. <laughs> she really did not suffer fools gladly. Exactly. She's very, she's very hard against fools and, and people who are not nice and kind and, and, um, and wise. So there's kind of a mixture of, of Christian ethics, I think, and civic noble ethic. But then there's all her liturgical poetry, which is what she's more known for. And I find her liturgical poetry to be economic and sort of dense and elegant. There's a lot of liturgical poetry that is almost, you know, baroque in, in, in its metaphors and, and its rhyming effects and and stuff like that. But a lot of what we have from Cassia is short pieces. And I don't think that's a coincidence necessarily. She has two canons, but they're not super long. She has no contagias, which is another long genre, but she has, we have a lot of shorter things. She's, she's able to say something important in relatively brief statements without sort of going on. And her poetry is, it's, it has this very direct sense to it. You know, there's no mysticism like in, in the later Simeon, the new theologian. And, and there's not these long narratives that we have in maybe in earlier poetry, but there's the sort of scenes that are very direct and intense. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thomas. So now to go back to Alexander, I was wondering, uh, how do we know of her work today? And why are they known, uh, her hymns, her poems? And how do we know about them? Well, we know them from sort of two angles. One of them is from current use. And so there are melodies for her hymns in all of the modern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic traditions that use the, the service books that include them. And we can also kind of approach it from the other end, from that of manuscripts and from scholarship and looking to see how they were recorded in the Middle Ages. And when we look and see that, we see twice as many hymns that actually made it into the modern service books. We see that the melodies that are recorded there in notation, so we have a kind of musical notation that is in use in Byzantium, in the, in the uh, Eastern Roman Empire and adjoining lands, that we can read pretty well in terms of its sequence of pitches from about the, toward the end of the 12th century. And there are earlier forms of notation too that get close to that. So we can pretty well tell it was the same melody that was then copied into this form that came in in the late 12th, which we call middle Byzantine notation. And that middle Byzantine notation is used all the way to the beginning of the 19th century. So we have also, we can chart a continuous tradition of transmission of the melodies of her hymns. And in uh, some cases, those melodies seem to have been sort of changed in various ways, kind of naturally as art might evolve through the years and as it responds to different circumstances. So again, there are these two ways in. Either you can sort of hear the what we might call the received melody, the melody that people can learn even by oral tradition today, or one can go back and look at these early manuscripts as well. Yes, I see. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
So I would like to ask Thomas, were there any more female hymnographers in Byzantium or was she just a unique case? Well, I, w- I would say both. I mean, she is definitely a unique case. She's the only one who has really made her way into the, the liturgical world of the Byzantine rite. But there are, there are some other female hymnographers in Byzantine tradition, a couple who are only known sort of by name. And then there were two other female hymnographers in the same century as Cassia lived. So there seems to have been in this last part of the of iconoclasm, there seems to have been some kind of opening for uh, noble women to be able to, to contribute poetically more than before. And it's possible that it has something to do with iconoclasm where, you know, we know that the empresses were important in fighting for the icons and that there was somehow some kind of, I, I mean, I don't know, but there seems to have been some kind of opening for for women who were intellectual. There were also a resurgence in the monasteries in Constantinople at the end of or after iconoclasm. And Cassia and, and uh, these other women hymnographers were also monastic people. So that may also sort of explain this a little bit, I guess. But I think there's an interesting question as to who they wrote for and what kind of poetry this is, because Thecla, who was one of the other women hymnographers, has written a a canon that is both addressed, clearly addressed to women, to be sung by women, and is on the Virgin Mary or Theotokos. So it has a sort of a very feminine style, you could say. It, it uses feminine adjectives and verbs for the singer and stuff. And this, you know, is probably be explained by the fact that they were supposed to be sung in for a monastery of nuns. But Cassia does not do this. Cassia, as, as far as I can see, avoids using female verbal forms and adjectives for the the we of the hymn, so that it's much more open to be used by um, by other communities. So it seems that she's more ambitious. Maybe her from the very outset, she really wants to to make uh, music for a larger audience. Thank you. Yes, Alexander, what's your take on what Thomas just shared with us? Well, I think one important distinction to make is between that of hymnographer and composer or melodos, because where Cassia is unique among the women who have written hymns is that she also, in some cases, wrote her own melodies. And that's the definition of a melodos. You are a singer-songwriter, as it were. You write both the tunes and the words. And so whereas Theodosia and Thecla have left us 
hymns based on other melodies that were pre-existing. And this is true of also some male hymnographers, like Joseph the hymnographer, he's called the hymnographer because he didn't, as far as we know, write any original tunes of his own. He just recycled others that were already in circulation. And I mean, it's a, a very useful thing to do because that's how cantors can memorize a relatively small body of model melodies and sing many thousands of hymns. But Cassia, she wrote, and those are the things that actually stayed in the modern service books. It's the hymns that she wrote with their own melodies, idiomela, they're called in, in Greek, that then were widely dispersed and stayed in the books. Whereas the hymns that she wrote to pre-existing melodies, some of them made it quite far within a few decades of her lifetime, even as far as Jerusalem, we know from manuscripts. But those are not the ones that made it into the modern service books. Yes, I see. I see. So in, in, in contemporary terms, we would say that she was the composer and the lyric writer in some of these cases. Yes, I see. So, Alexander, what types of hymns did she write? I mean, you said you spoke about the idiomela. Apart from this distinction, do we have other distinctions as well? And how do you perform the hymns that she wrote today? So, well, I'll take the last question first then. Uh, how do we perform them today? Well, what we do is that we make additions based on the medieval manuscripts, which ha means having to make some decisions about rhythm and sh sharps and flats because the old notation, the notation that was in use up until the beginning of the 19th century had no way of showing the difference between in English, what we would in American English call quarter notes and eighth notes or crotchets and quavers as they'd say here in the UK. So that no way to show the subdivision of the beat between bum, 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 and bum, 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 or bum, 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 you had to decide how that worked from other contexts. And same thing with sharps and flats. So basically that's where the scholarly part comes in, you know, editing these manuscripts to then figure out as well as we can, based on the evidence that we have, how those might have been interpreted in the Middle Ages. We don't have any recordings. So for other things, we can also look to the living traditions for ideas about what type of vocal style to use and so on. But about her hymns, she left us essentially three types. I should say all of her poetry, her hymns are for the right of Jerusalem, which had made its way to Constantinople and had started to become a kind of standard way of doing the morning and evening cycle of prayer. There was a, another one that Hagia Sophia used, very archaic, full of psalms, very few hymns at all. So actually, Cassia was part of this movement to write lots and lots of hymns for the Jerusalem office. And so she wrote three types. One, so the first of that is the canon, uh, and that's for the morning prayer service, the orthros. And she's left us two, uh, one of which we've recorded here, it, which is a canon of four odes for Holy Saturday. There's some dispute about who wrote what, when, and it, it's a set where the model stanzas are still in the in the service books today, but the rest of it has been replaced by other people. And we hear from some Byzantine writers even that could have been perhaps deliberately suppressed because she was a woman and there were some people who thought it wasn't actually fitting to have on the eve of Easter to have the hymns of a woman being sung. Uh, be that as it may, it exists, her version, and fairly widely distributed in medieval manuscripts. And so we can maybe even listen to the beginning of this. And so this is the first ode of 
her canon for Holy Saturday, uh, which actually, Thomas, it actually does mention us singing like the women. It talks because it's it's meant to be attached to the Song of Moses in the Red Sea. So she gets, she just sneaks it in ever so slightly, the notion that it might be her community. But of course, it was taken up elsewhere. So let's hear now the medieval version of this hymn for Holy Saturday, the very first section Ode one, he who once hid the pursuing tyrant, Kimati Thalassis. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I am very curious, Alexander. I have heard the sound of Capella Romana, and it is different from what is being um, sung in, in the Eastern Mediterranean today. So why is it different? Can you tell us more about that? Uh, sure. I think that one of the main things is that the melodies have just changed over the centuries. So whereas in this last track, you just heard and now it's so it's essentially the same scale. 
but the melody has changed a bit over time. So some of it then, sometimes people from Greece might say, oh, this sounds a little Gregorian or something in some cases, but there are other cases actually, it would just actually depend on the hymn because there are some hymns that have changed almost not at all over the many centuries. But I think that's probably the thing that would hit you the most, that, that this isn't the melody I hear in church, what's going on? I see. Thomas, how do the, the sounds of Capella Romana, how does the interpretation of the hymns sound to you, a scholar of hymns? Do they have an illuminating effect? Do they have, you know, a sort of a pleasure effect? It's completely up to you the way you want to answer it. Well, I'm not a musicologist, but the sort of the immediate feeling is that it's just very beautiful. It's just something you could just sit and, and listen to for a, for a long time. Now, I've only heard I've only heard parts of the new recording. I haven't heard all of them yet. But I but I also I wanted to ask Alexander, if I may, do we know anything about whether she wrote for male or female voices? I don't know exactly what kind of voices one would have written for and what sort of the, the context of performance in her day. Do we know how much do we know about that? Well, I think one new thing you can say is that she wrote for relatively sophisticated, trained voices at times, because some of her hymns have fairly uh, wide vocal range and uh, require some finesse to, to pull off. So beyond that, though, the nice thing about chant is, and this applies to Western, you know, Latin plain chant uh, as well, that if you don't have multiple parts and you don't have instrumental accompaniment, you can pitch it wherever you want. So this is something that this music, once you write the tune, it can be sung by anybody who has the technical skill to be able to pull off that level of sophistication in a melody. So in Byzantium, we know that that class of people included everything from professional soloists at a place like Hagia Sophia, some of whom were eunuchs as well. So we had male sopranos plus tenors and basses, the usual run of, of male voices. We had children from the imperial orphanage. We had choirs of monks and nuns. And there's a marvelous description uh, in the Timarion of the a vigil for St. Demetrius uh, in Thessaloniki. And it talks about how you had choirs of monks and nuns and the cathedral foundation of choristers, everybody is all singing. And it's something very similar in some ways to what Egeria described uh, many centuries before in, in Jerusalem in, in late antiquity. So I think it was a very varied soundscape. And basically, if you were capable of singing it, you did and you sang it in your own register. And the fact that, that we have this in the hymn book for the Anastasis already in the ninth century means that they were probably used both in monastic settings and in more public Iopolitis churches right from the very beginning. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we, uh, Cassia being an aristocrat and being in those circles, our friend and mutual colleague, Dig Freushov, has pointed out that one of the centers for the production, the music for the Rite of Jerusalem in Constantinople was the Imperial Chapel. So it probably would have made it, you know, kind of everywhere, as you say, it made it as far as Jerusalem within a few decades. One of the other types of hymns that Cassia wrote is called the Stichiron, and that's from the word stichos, which means verse. And these are hymns to be inserted between the verses of psalms. The, the core of the Jerusalem office was made of psalms that you would hear every night and every morning, and that to make those 
psalms relevant to the day, a thing that you're celebrating that day, they would put hymns in that would talk about what you're celebrating that day. So one of the things that Cassia did was she wrote a bunch of hymns for Christmas, and they are of two types. One, Ideomala, this with their own melody, where she composed the melody, and that's the one that stayed in the books when Augustus reigned. Uh, but also she wrote a series of hymns to a pre-existing melody. And why don't we listen to one of those right now? This didn't make it into the modern service books, but it's one of a set of four hymns for Christmas Eve. And this one begins, when you appeared, Christ made flesh from a woman Osorathis Christe e Ginecos Sesarcomenos. great. So um, I was wondering now, Alexander, if you would like to ask anything, Thomas, if you both have any concluding remarks uh, to this uh, conversation, very, very interesting and illuminating about Cassiani and the, the long tradition of the reception of her hymns. Thomas, one of your articles that I enjoyed very much recently is talking about the tradition in Constantinople of Holy Wednesday, when the sinful woman 
identified as a prostitute in hymnography is commemorated. And you have Cassia as the last in that sequence, but I'm wondering if you might set the stage some for it, because before we actually get to Cassia's hymn on that subject. Yeah, that's that's a, a fun question because, of course, the um, the reading for Holy Wednesday was the story about the sinful woman who anointed Christ, and it became a very popular theme among both Syriac and Greek-speaking hymnographers and, and poets. So we have several songs about the sinful woman who is anointing Christ before his crucifixion. And in a lot of those, most, most of them are written by men, and they are often very erotic in their language. There's this uh, attraction where the uh, sinful woman who is sort of a reformed sex addict, you could say, and she's deeply attracted to Christ because he is handsome. It's not just on a, on a spiritual level, but he, he, he is good looking. And, and so it becomes a story of a very, of an erotic encounter. Cassia, on the other hand, is not so interested in the, the, the sexual psychology of this woman. She does not call her the sinful woman. She doesn't call her the harlot. And she does not call her Mary Magdalene. Many have called her that, but that's not who she is in Cassia's story. She is simply someone who feels her own sinfulness, her own struggle with her own desires and, 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 and her dark interior. And so there's a, a deep emotional devotion, but it's, it's not framed in the same kind of erotic or sexual language. And it's interesting that this hymn by Cassia has been turned into a kind of Mary Magdalene story where people have read Cassia herself as this Mary Magdalene figure who was a, a harlot before and is now sort of put her old sinful life behind her. So, so the I or the first person singular of the hymn has become Cassia. And, and so what happened with the Mary Magdalene of the Gospels, being a female person with authority that was in the 6th century, became all of a sudden interpreted as a reformed harlot. The same thing happens to Cassia, who's then a woman with authority, and she's also turned into this reformed sex addict, just like Mary of Egypt. And so this becomes kind of a type for strong women in a way. And it's interesting also when Cassia, in her short troparion on Pelagia, who is another harlot saint, we have the same phenomenon where, where she's often portrayed with strong desires before she becomes a Christian. But Cassia does not do that. She doesn't go into these wild fantasies, but she just says she sort of gave herself to Christ. Actually, what you were just saying there then reminded me of the economy also of her poetry that you talked about earlier, Thomas. And this very much is reflected in the earliest music that we have, actually 
the version we recorded the, from the from the old medieval manuscripts in that where some of the modern settings of that are very emotional that with all sorts of almost flash and trash sometimes in some of the, the, the modern chant settings, that her one is very restrained melodically. Uh, perhaps we can listen to a bit of the end of that. So it's mostly told in the first person and after the person who has gone through, you know, saying all these things about the repentance, then she recalls Eve in the garden and speaks of the feet that Eve heard in paradise and hid herself in fear. And then it ends with a final prayer. Who can search out the multitude of my sins, in the depths of your judgment, my savior, savior of souls. So we'll pick it up there in the hymn and you will hear a couple of times the soloists in the choir doing an intonation which is essentially reminding the choir of the mode the scale that they're supposed to be singing
Well, thank you very much. And uh, listening to this beautiful music, I would like to thank you both again for joining us today. And I hope that our audience will also enjoy uh, this uh, special podcast interspersed with hymns sung by the Capella Romana. Thank you both, uh, Thomas and Alexander. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumberton Oaks by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. As always, thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again soon.